Hey, um, tonight we're going to be in uh, Exodus 19. Um, did I, what did I say? I said Exodus. We're not going to be in Exodus 19, not a do-over, Leviticus 19. So grab your Bibles, your iPads or phones or whatever you're accessing the Word of God on. Find Leviticus chapter 19, and we're just going through the book of Leviticus. I have had in the last couple of weeks, a couple of different people very graciously uh, just say how blessed they are going through Leviticus and how kind of surprised they have been that it's not all boring and everything, that there's actually real-life application. Who knew in the book of Leviticus? And so I agree with you guys. There's such a, so much rich stuff. Leviticus kind of gets a, a bad rap so often. Um, Tonight, we're going to be in chapters, uh, chapter 19. Um, we're continuing as Moses is there at Mount Sinai, children of Israel encamped around the tabernacle. Um, they've been there for some time, and now they're receiving the law. And, um, you know, it's been so long since we've been in Exodus, we've almost forgotten that they're still there. And they're getting ready to move on into the promised land, but they're, they're still receiving uh, the law from from Moses. So that's where we are. Let's pray and then we'll jump in. We thank you, Lord, for your word. And I think it's always good for us to pause, take a, de- a deep breath, because um, there's a lot of other voices that we hear all throughout the day. But tonight we want to hear your voice. We recognize that this is like no other book. It's living, it's powerful, it's inspired, it's inerrant, and it is authoritative. And we don't want to somehow try to fit your word into our lives. We want to fit our lives into your word. We don't just want to get into your word tonight. We want your word to get into us. And that's not being cliche or cute. That is truly our heart. We want to be transformed from the inside out. And we recognize that your word is like nothing else. It is living and powerful. So Jesus, by your spirit, please come teach us, transform us, make us more like you tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So like I said, we're, we're continuing as Moses is, is giving out the law. Chapters 19 and 20 kind of go together Um, I'm only going to actually cover the first 18 verses of chapter 19, and you'll see why in a few minutes when we get there, but there's some really important things that are are developing here. I don't know if you read ahead. I don't know how many of you guys actually do that. If you did read ahead, you might have thought to yourself, and I certainly did, that what I'm reading just, just at first glance seems so disjointed, seems so like, you know, just scattered like a shotgun blast of applications that seemingly don't connect, seemingly are kind of all over the place and maybe even irrelevant to our lives in 2020. But I assure you, as you slow down, as we look at it together, those seemingly random thoughts, actually, um, there's some themes involved. We're going to see that they're grouped together for a reason, that God is communicating certain themes as we go through this. And Um, we are going to find that there's a lot of application. I was telling a couple of people this week, in the next couple of chapters, we're dealing with stuff like uh, uh, injustice, slavery, um, the poor, tattoos. Um, So clearly you're a sinner if you have a tattoo. You know what I'm saying? Uh, It just goes on and on. All these hot topics that are in our culture right now, guess what? God has something to say about them. And so we're going we're gonna to delve into all those things, at least at some level. But tonight, we want to jump into chapter uh, 19. And like I said, we're only going to get through verse 18, but let's go ahead and jump in verse 1. Actually, verse 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be Holy for or because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, if you've been with us through our study, I suspect there's some of us that when we read that first statement, I am holy, be holy, I am holy, that there might be a a tiny tendency in us to just be like, we get it. Like, okay, 
But I remind you, the main and great and wonderful theme of Leviticus is the holiness of God. God is holy, and we can't emphasize that enough. We have to be careful that we don't just say it without thinking about what it means. You know, I, I happen to be in um, Isaiah chapter 6 this morning, just my own personal reading the, through the Word of God. And uh, I was in Isaiah 6. Actually, I was in Second Chronicles reading about Uzziah. Then I remembered Isaiah said, in the year Uzziah died, and I turned to Isaiah 6. Anyway, when Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord, who is Jesus Christ, sitting on the throne in heaven, do you guys remember what else happens? The glory of the Lord filled that place. There's these angels, these angelic beings with six wings, two covering their face, two their feet, and two with their flying, and they're just night and day. What are they declaring? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The holiness of God is a frightening thing. If that's what they're declaring in heaven, if the only thing they can get out in heaven as they, as they see the glory of God is just to get out holy, holy, if that's what captures them, if that's all they can say, we just need to understand the holiness of God is an awesome thing. He is completely other than, different than, separate from, not like anything or anyone else in this world as we've talked about before. Amen? He transcends anything. If you compare him to anything, you're bringing him down because he doesn't compare to anything. He's far beyond that. He's holy. He's perfect. He's righteous. He dwells in unapproachable light. But then he says, I am holy. I'm the Lord your God. And but what does he say here? So you be holy. You be holy because I'm the Lord your God and I'm holy. Now, we've, I know we've talked about this, but here it is again. So we're talking about it again. What God is basically declaring is because you are my people and I am holy, you are going to be holy. Now, we aren't holy in a different way. We're not transcendent. We're not other than, every, you know. But the idea is, with holiness, the root word being to be separated, we are to live lives that are separated from the world and separated to God. Remember at the beginning of chapter 18 where God, in essence, says, look, I don't want you to live like the Egyptians where you came from, and I don't want you to live like the Canaanites where you're going. I want you to live according to a different rule, my rules. Amen? And that stands true. That concept translates into the New Testament, as I've brought up many times, and I'm going to bring it up again. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.15, um, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. And then he actually goes on to quote Leviticus where he says, uh, I'm the Lord, your God, I'm holy, and be ye holy. So all that to say, guys, we're God's people. We belong to him. And what God is saying is, I want your lives to look different. I, I want you to live different. You're going to live differently. You're going to conduct your lives differently. We're going to think differently about everything in life. As we saw last week, sex. Um, you know, what we think about life, what we think about every area of life, God is saying, look, you're in this world, I want you to live in this world, but you're going to live your life according to a different rule. And that's what we're to do as well. Amen? And so the reason I'm kind of pushing that point again is because um, he establishes that yet again, and then he lays out some rules. Now, we're going to read in, in the rest from verses 3 to 8, there's four different rules that he kind of chucks out there. Again, seemingly disconnected, but there's kind of a theme developing, if you can catch it. Look at verse 3. He says, every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. Number one, he pulls up, actually, it's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Honor your father and your mother. And he says, look, you're to revere your mother and your father. That means to fear them with a healthy fear. It means to respect them. We're to have a healthy respect and obedience and honor. If you're past the time of living with your parents, we're still to honor and respect and revere our parents. How many of you guys are like, well, that doesn't happen too much in culture? That is so not the way we think in our culture anymore, is it? We're so far past that. But this is so vital. God is saying, you're to honor. In fact, Paul even accentuates on this in, in, in Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm paraphrasing, so forgive me if I hack it, but he basically says, children, you know, obey your parents. This is the first command with a promise that it might go well with you. You're to honor them. And God comes down super harshly on those who don't obey their parents. In fact, in the law, it says they're to be put to death. Why so harsh? Because listen, everything starts in the family. Everything starts at home. When that crumbles, the foundations crumble, 
you know, it can't stand. The house can't stand anymore. And that's why I think Satan attacks the family so severely. But just for now, we'll leave it there. He starts by saying, you need to honor your father and your mother. You need to respect them. And guys, by the way, that might be a, a word for some of you here tonight, whether you're younger or whether you're older. If you're younger and you're understanding and hearing what I'm saying right now, I want to encourage you, honor your mom and dad. You're not always going to agree with your mom and dad, but here's the thing. You need to recognize God put them over you as your parents, and the way that you honor God is you honor them. Maybe you're older and you're out of the house. Be careful how you talk about your mom and dad. And maybe they weren't the best parents, but you know, maybe they did the best that they could. Never slight them. Never dishonor them in the way you talk about them. I really think we need to repent of that because we live in a culture that just trashes our parents. We live in a culture that says, forget what your parents think or whatever. But that's not the way we're supposed to be. Why? Because we're God's kids. And he's teaching us about authority. Ooh, I'm showing my hand a little bit. Look at the next one. He says, you shall keep my Sabbaths. And again, um, that's part of the Ten Commandments. He says, remember the Sabbath. Uh, I'm not going to develop this all right now again, but I think next week we'll talk a little bit more as New Testament believers. Again, we're not under the law, and Jesus is our Sabbath. Amen. We're on a perpetual Sabbath. He is our rest. We don't work for um, our salvation or blessing or anything. We are in Christ. He is our Sabbath. But to them, and he's saying in this context, you guys are to set apart that day, Saturday, and just honor me and rest. Then he says... um, Verse 4, and don't turn to idols or make yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. By the way, I I don't know if anybody caught this in Fox News a couple of days ago. I read this article. Um, I was just like going, sometimes I just check headlines to see. I can't be there too long, if you know what I'm saying. I'm just scanning headlines and then trying not to commit Harry Carey, right? Um, That's an exaggeration. Um, But I saw this headline. They made some big discovery in Israel, and that caught my attention. So in this kind of swanky uh, neighborhood in, in South Jerusalem or somewhere, they, they found this, this, this remains of this old building from the first temple era, so Solomon's temple era, um, and they found like 20 or 30 uh, like uh, pot handles, like um, pottery handles with Hebrew inscriptions on it, something to the king or something like that. So some kind of storeroom. It's a really like they're all amazed at this. But right also in there, what did they find? Little carved idols of women, horses, and they were all related to pagan worship. So here you are. I mean, Israel, in the first temple era, while the temple's standing, yet here they still have their carved idols and their, their, uh, you know, offering to God and at the same time worshiping idols. That was the plague of Israel while they were in the land. But again, God... Hearkening back to the first couple of commandments, there's no other God before him. Don't make any idols. And then he says in verse 5, and when you offer a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord, um, you, you shall offer it, listen to this, so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day. You offer it or the day after. And anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted It's not accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. We've covered a lot of those offerings. It's not my intention to rehash all of that, but I do want you to catch what he's saying. When you do bring me an offering, what is he saying? Do it the way I told you. Don't get cute. Don't get tricky. Don't take shortcuts. You, you bring me your offering, and then you're allowed to eat it on this day and this day and not on this day. And he just says, just do it how I told you, okay? Now, those who have studied this way more than me, and, and, and they point out, I've read in several other areas, that there's a theme that's developed in these first eight verses, this overarching umbrella idea of authority. That God is establishing authority. What does he say, say at the beginning? I am the Lord your God, and you're going to be holy because I'm holy. And you know what? It starts at home. Honor your mother and your father. And you know what? You're going to honor me also by remembering me on the Sabbath day. And also, remember, no idols. I'm number one. And when you do offer to me, I want you to do it the way that I have prescribed for you to do it. It's like God is asserting his authority and saying, as my people, the first thing I want you to know is, you do what I tell you to. You're under my authority. Amen? How many of you guys believe that God has the right to, to say what's right and what's wrong? And what we do and what we don't do. 
and we talked a lot about this last week, culture, pop culture all throughout time or whatever always changes. Listen, morality, what's right and wrong, is not up to a vote or what's popular or anything like that. God is the one who all by himself gets to decide what's right and what's wrong and what we're to do and what we're not to do. He has final authority in your life. Can I ask you a question? Does God actually, in reality, have final authority in your life? Or do you treat the word of God like I've done in my past, kind of like a buffet? Well, I like that. I'm going to steer away from that. I'm not really into veggies. I'm going to just eat this over here. And we just kind of pick and choose. Or do we approach God's word saying, there's a very high likelihood that when I read your word, God, I'm going to disagree. But Lord, help me to remember that if somebody's wrong, it's me and not you. Amen? We're not all batting a 1,000, you guys. Baseball term. Baseball's back. Hallelujah. Anyways, we're not all batting a 1,000. But what we need to recognize is that we need to have a heart that has this trajectory and this main pulse that says, I want to live a life of obedience. I'm not 100% there, but God, when I read your word, when I come to church, when I'm learning, Lord, show me if there's any wrong thing of some wicked way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. Amen? And we need to let the word of God have the final authority in our lives, not pop culture, not our opinion, what we like or dislike. And like I said, it starts at home. By the way, as God's people who are under God's authority, let me just say this. As Christians, and I know Christian gets a bad name, as Jesus followers, we need to be those who know how to be under authority. That is so not popular right now. Right or wrong? What's popular in our culture is question authority. Don't, you know, have any, parents don't tell you what to do, teachers don't tell you what to do, the police sure don't tell you what to do, and we just buck against any kind of authority, but as God's children, we are to live differently, we are to be able to live under authority, the authority of our parents, the authority of teachers, the authority of coaches, the authority of police, the authority of local government, the authority of federal government, is there a time to disobey? Yes, respectfully if it ever goes uh, clearly against the grain of what something God commands us to do or is morally wrong, yes. But I'm talking about a heart attitude. Are you guys tracking with me? And this really is a problem because it's in the church too. Paul, our, our author of Hebrews, says that we're to submit to our spiritual leaders. But this idea of submitting, this idea of being under authority, whether it's in the home as a child, whether it's in your community, we have to look different on this, guys, than the rest of the world. It used to drive me crazy when um, my kids were younger and they were playing sports or whatever, and I would hear the parents in front of their kids trash the coach because their kids aren't getting playtime or their kids, and then hearing the kids trash their coach. Well, why wouldn't they? They just learned that from their parents, that that's okay. And it used to drive me nuts because I'm thinking, isn't the bigger lesson here to say, even if you hate the decision your coach is making, you respect him because we're building character more than playtime here, right? This, shouldn't that be the lesson? But instead, as parents, we're letting loose. We're thrashing our te- the teachers. We're thrashing the principal. We're thrashing our bosses. And guys, we need to repent from that. And we need to know how to live under authority in subjection and in all humility because what does Jesus say we are? Bond slaves. Do slaves have rights? And we're all about it in our country. I have a right to this. We don't, as believers, our rights were laid at the cross. And we're just servants. Amen? You don't have to amen that one. If you, know, if you just do it by habit, I get it. But if you're not, not agreeing, don't feel obligated to amen me on that. But I triple dog dare you to amen me on that. <laughs> we, <laughs> we need to have that heart attitude. And, you know, we're, we're just rebels. We're just rebels. And... You know, we're all a bunch of ex-rebels, rebellious against God, but now we, we need to have more of a submitted attitude. And, and um, that's at work, that's at school, that's at home, that's all in our culture. Amen? By the way, you will shine like a light in the dark if you go to, you don't even have to try. You just be respectful to your boss, you will stick out like a sore thumb. Don't gossip about you know, your teacher or talk trash about your coach or whatever, you will stick out. You'll probably get made fun of, but I'll tell you what, 
you'll shine for Christ. You, you don't trash your parents while your friends are trashing their parents. You'll stick out like a sore thumb in a good way for Jesus. Amen? I didn't intend to spend that much time on it, but I feel like my daughter really needed to hear it. No, I'm just kidding. Totally <laughs> kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, well, now he's going to touch on another topic here, and I'll just give you what the topic is, or, or not the topic, but maybe like a theme. Um, it's actually in verse 18. It says this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So kind of just tuck that away, put it on the back burner, and read with me the verses we're about to go through through that lens of loving your neighbor as yourself. You can imagine this is a massive topic that we can't exhaust tonight, but we're getting to the nitty-gritty of the law. Check it out, verse 9. When you reap your harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now, I just want to um, fast forward a little bit to Deuteronomy um, chapter 24 verse 19, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24, 19, little expansion on this. He says, when you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, don't go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, don't go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, don't strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. This is a great little section right here because what he's dealing with is, if you would, the Old Testament welfare system. And God is establishing something I think is very important here. He acknowledges that in that culture, in their society, there would be those who, who owned land that would have fields, and that translates, by the way, to money. Like, that's not our currency. That's not our trip today. But for them, it was, it, that's when you were doing well. You had either land or you had animals or you had both. And what he's saying is, he's saying to the ones who had, he said, look, when it's time for harvest, you're not to harvest your field all the way into the corner, you're to round the corner and just leave some out there. How much you round it, that's kind of up to you, I guess. When you are pulling in the sheaves and you drop one, don't bend down and get it, leave it lie. And when you, you beat the olive trees to get the olives fall down, don't just go back the next day and beat the crud out of that tree. Just beat it once, whatever falls, falls, leave the rest on the tree. Don't strip the, the grapes completely off the vine. Why? He basically says, so that the poor, so that the fatherless and the widow and those who just weren't able to be provided for any other way could come behind them and work for that food, but be able to have that. Does that make sense? We saw that, by the way, in the story of Ruth. Ruth, the Moabitess, she comes back from Moab with Naomi, and she happens, just so happens to go into a guy's field named Boaz, and she's, you know, gleaning in that field, and Boaz is like, dang, she's hot. Let her glean in my field. And then he tells his boys, he's like, hey, drop a few extras. Why? Because he's just like, that was like ancient flirting, I guess, or whatever. So like, here's a sheave, baby, you know, or whatever. Um, but he's like dropping stuff. And like she comes home that night. She's like, I think we did pretty good. And Naomi's like, okay, whose field are you in? They're flirting. And the rest is history. But that's a beautiful scene that we see. Now, what I love about this is God's communicating a couple of things. Number one, to the rich or to those who had wealth. What's he saying? You need to have compassion for those who aren't as wealthy and who don't have as much as you do or aren't able to work like you're able to work. And what he's doing by saying round your fields and leave some for them is he's saying he's trying to work into them a heart of compassion so that it would guard them against greed. I mean, how many of us would do that? We'd be like, no, I'm going to get every last little inch. That's my field. Not worked for it. I bought it with my own two you know, and like American, you know, and go get it. But God's like, you know, I want to I guard you against that, that 
that tendency to forget who actually owns it. I do. It's my field. And I'm telling you, round the corners, because I want you to learn compassion, and I want to guard you from greed. He's not saying you can't harvest your field or make money or do well for yourself. That's fantastic. It's going to go even better for you if you give some away. But then to the poor, what does he do? He says, now you have an opportunity to be provided for. It wasn't given to them. It wasn't a freebie. Guess what? They had to go and work for it. They had to go out and work for it for that day's amount of food. And what is God doing there? He's providing for the poor, and he's giving them the dignity of an honest day's work to provide for themselves. Amen? That's an important thing. Now, of course, I'm sure there's, just like in their society, in every society, there are those who aren't able to work and who need handout, who need help in that way. Of course. But this was guarding against a victim mentality. Oh, I'm, I'm poor. I can't have it. He was guarding against that, that feeling sorry. He said, look, it's, you're provided for, but you got to get up, put the video games down, and go work for it. I'm sorry. Was that, that was a little bit of my opinion coming through there. Sorry. A little tainted. But I love this because um, he said, look, you, I'm going to provide for you, but it's not free. You're going to have to go get dirty and sweat, and, and that, it's a good thing because it's good to work. Amen? And so he does that. And, of course, I want to reiterate, there are instances in every culture at every time where there's those who can't work, and, and we, we get to provide for them, and we, we, it's, a, it's a privilege to do that. But for those who can work and are able to work, he says, go work and, and do that. So interesting. I'll leave it at that. Um, God cares for the poor, gives them the opportunity, and he's also trying to teach the rich a lesson. Hey, he's not dinging them for being rich. He's just saying, um, but be compassionate, and, and here's an opportunity for you to give and be kind. Well, verse 11, he says, you shall not steal. The temptation right there is to just go over that real quick to the next sentence. Don't steal. We're like, yeah, 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 got that. But that's a good one. Don't steal. Oh, never steal. Really? I used to be a little thief. My mom's here. This is so embarrassing to talk about your, your sins when your mom's in the audience. But when I was a little kid, I was kind of a thief. I stole at school. I stole, um, I don't even want to get into all the stuff I stole. But it's so interesting how you could justify it. Well, they're the real thieves charging that much money. I'm going to go. You know what? They have all these extra two-by-fours on the job site. Well, they're not going to miss one two-by-four. That's stealing. You know what else is Stealing. When you're supposed to clock in and start working at 8 o'clock, but you clock in and then start getting ready and putting your stuff in the cupboard and you're on the clock, but you're wasting time, that's stealing. When you're not supposed to have a 10-minute break and you take a 15-minute break, you're stealing. So don't just be like, oh, I would never steal. We've all stolen stuff. And it's, it's easy to justify and color it a different way. But I just love how blunt God is like, don't steal. Don't steal stuff. Don't steal time. Don't steal money from your employer. Be honest. He says, you shall not deal falsely or deceitfully. You shall not lie to one another. That's great. Don't lie to each other. He says, you shall not swear by my name falsely, so to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Don't lie, don't be deceiving, and don't swear by my name. I swear to God, this is the best deal you're ever going to get. Don't do that. Oh, you swore to God. Well, then, I, well, where do I sign? I mean, it's got to be true. Yeah, I, he's basically saying, look, don't steal. Don't lie to each other. Don't be deceitful. Don't swear. All of this packages together by saying this. Be honest with one another. And here's something that I think bleeds over from the world into the church sometimes, and that is this. Well, church is church, but business is business. And this is just a cutthroat business. And if you're going to get anywhere in this world, you've got to cut the corners, and you've got to do this. If you're going to make the sale, you've got to tell them what they want. And that might be true. But that's not how we're to operate as believers, which might mean you don't climb the ladder, which might mean you get dinged, which might mean you may never make the next level or whatever, because you might have to say, you know what, what's important to me is to have character and to honor my God. I'm not going to tell them this to make the deal when I know full well it's not true. Does that make sense? Is any of this ringing a bell? Anybody ever been burnt by somebody before that promised something and they knew full? Or you ever tried to go to buy a car? Not every car salesman's a, an, an artist, um, but they're out there. 
So basically just saying, deal honestly with one another. And I think that that is just very good wisdom. You know, again, as believers, not to just hammer this home, but as believers, we really should have a reputation for being honest in the way that we deal in our businesses and with our practices. And if we do mess up or even if we do something wrong, we need to own it. And to do that means it sometimes costs us. But do the right thing. Okay, verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. That's pretty straightforward. Just don't if you just because you have the opportunity to oppress somebody or get over on them, don't. He says the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you night all night until morning. So in that day, like you got paid at the end of the workday. Like for us, it would be like bi-monthly or monthly or something like that. But he basically is is keeping the employer honest and saying, look, that guy worked. You owe him money. You pay him money when you're supposed to pay him money. Don't withhold it. Don't play games with him. Be honest. Don't oppress him. Uh, Just give it to him. You guys get it. Verse 14. You shall not, this is kind of amazing that he had to put this in here. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Isn't that sad that that has to even be in there? You know why it has to be in there? Because people will do it. That's so sad. A deaf person, and what do you do? You're cursing at them, or you're making fun of them, or whatever, because they can't hear you. That, how, how disgusting is that? Or a blind person. Now, whether he means physically doing that, or he's, it's probably a little more broad than that. And the idea of what he's saying is, just because you can take advantage of somebody who's at a disadvantage, don't do that. Don't oppress people. If there's a physical handicap, if there's a whatever, don't take advantage of people, but on, what is God doing here, by the way? God is honoring people that were at a disadvantage, where in every other culture at that time, those people were thrown to the curb, and God is here elevating them, saying, don't forget, I'm the Lord your God, I'm the God of them, and I'm the God of you, and I see what you're doing. Just a great word of just, just how much honor and dignity God gives to every level of person in society. Amen? So he goes on and tells him, don't oppress people. Verse 15, you shall do, uh, this is a good one, verse 15, you shall do no injustice in court. Injustice is a big topic right now. Here's God's heart. He says, you shall do no injustice in court. So this would be addressed to somebody that would be a judge, a magistrate, somebody who had that kind of power. And he says, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. What God declares is in a courtroom setting, if any kind of decision is coming down, he's warning against two things. He says, I want you to judge righteously. And he warns of two very real tendencies. He says, one, you're going to be tempted to be lenient to the poor because they're poor. But that is not right. Okay, you have compassion on them because they're poor and all of that, but if they have legally broken the law or done this, just because they're poor, you can't just cut them a break because they're poor. They still have to answer to the law. Did you guys catch that? But there'd be a tendency, and that's in us, isn't it? There's a tendency, well, we'll just cut them an extra break. Well, no, he's like, well, that's just not just then. Be righteous, be fair across the board. The other tendency would be to give special privilege to somebody who's rich, and that's pretty easy to see too because, okay, if I, uh, that guy's an upstanding person or that woman is an upstanding person in society and if I'm lenient to them, that could come back on me and what is God saying? Judge righteously. Don't be a respecter of persons. If they're poor, don't compromise justice just because they're poor and if they're rich, don't compromise justice because they're rich but be fair. Amen? We understand that. You might say, well, I'm not a judge, and in fact, I look around the room, I don't think any of us are judges in here, Um, but there is an application for us. You see, the point is, for us, is that to show partiality is not love. James addressed this. In fact, I'll just read it to you. It's James chapter 2, verse, well, verse 1, he says, my brothers, don't show partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on and he gives this example of somebody's poor and they come into your church. Don't kick them to the back row and somebody rich comes in, put them in the front. He's like, don't show partiality. Verse eight, 
if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scriptures, which is, here it is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin, and you're convicted by the law of the transgressor. So it may not be in a courtroom setting, but listen to me, guys. We do this. We do this in the church. We can fall into this. We can show partiality because we feel sorry for somebody or because they're poor or because they're rich, and we have to guard against this and not be a respecter of persons, but treat people equally. Amen? Pastors can be tempted to do this. Well, I don't want to confront that person in the church over their obvious sin because they're big givers. I'm not saying we do that. I'm just saying like that can be a very, because people that stand behind these pulpits are human, and they can, we're to treat people equally. Oh, man, they're just going through a hard time, and da, 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 so we'll just kind of wink at their sin of living together. But I know they're not married, but they just couldn't afford another. No, that's sin. Yeah, they're poor, but you, you got to treat it like what? It, you know what I'm saying? Like, we can be respecters of persons, but we need to have that heart of equality like God says. So you get it. Um, let's get back to this. Look at verse 16. Um, this is huge. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Let me just deal with that first one real quick. He says, don't slander your neighbor. <laughs> don't slander your neighbor. Do you guys know what slander is? Uh, one, of the, um, one of the translations has it um, as a talebearer. Anybody's translation say talebearer? You know what another translation is? Informant. I like that one because that's what gossips are, aren't they? Don't be a slanderer. Don't, slander, don't be an informant on your, on, your, on your neighbor. Like, oh, did you hear about la, 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 la. Now listen, all of us are tempted to sip the tea, spill the tea, hear a little bit of the gossip. I, but guys, he says, don't do it. Don't be a slanderer. I, just, I grabbed a handful of Proverbs. You don't even have to write them down if you don't want to, but just listen to them for a moment. This is what Proverbs 11 says. Gossip betrays confidence. Proverbs 16, 28 says that a gossip separates good friends. You ever see that happen where there's good friends, but so-and-so starts talking about so-and-so, and all of a sudden they can't even show up at the same function anymore because there's just backbiting and talking going on. He goes on to say, words, <laughs> I, I'm just chuckling because this is so true. Words of a gossip or a whisperer are like delicious morsels that go down into the innermost parts of the body. Why in the world is gossip so tasty? Gossip to me is like those things you get at Costco, those dark chocolate um, bark chip things. You guys know what I'm talking about? I have some in my fridge right now, and I cannot, I'll walk by the fridge and be like, I'll take one, like two, three, Four, and they'll offer my wife, like, oh, thanks. I'm like, yeah, I had seven. <laughs> but they're so good. They, oh, they just, they're so good going down. But you, you eat seven, and they're, they're deep down in there. Now you're like, blah, 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 blah. you know, your stomach's hurting, whatever. That's like gossip. It, why does it taste so good going down? What is it in our fallen nature that just loves a tasty tidbit of information about diddly diddly do, about so-and-so? Did you hear about so-and-so? No. Do tell what's going on. I just want to pray for them. Listen, I am not wagging a finger at you. I am just as susceptible and just as guilty of this as anyone else. In fact, don't let people kid you that only women gossip. Guys, we are just as bad. We just do it differently. We have a different approach or whatever. It's not as subtle. <laughs> but guys, we, we, we need to be careful. In fact, on a very serious note, there's too much gossip in this church. There's too much talk in this church. Now, we're not the only church that has this problem, so take a breath. But there is. There's too much talk about other people. It gets around. By the time a pastor hears it, it has gone around the block ten times. But there's too much talk, guys. And there's division happening. And a lot of it's just because we don't know how to keep our mouth shut. And I know that sounds harsh, but listen, another proverb for you, 26, 20 says, for lack of wood, the fire goes out, 
and where there's no whisperer, quarreling ceases. You know, the best way to put out a fire is remove the fuel. And the best way to stop gossip is refuse to listen to it. Even if it makes a very awkward moment, don't participate. Excuse yourself or say, wait a minute, would they appreciate you saying that if they were standing right here? That's kind of the grid I run things through. Again, I, I, some of you know me. I've been guilty of gossip. I've been guilty of repeating things or saying things that maybe just are God. They just kind of cast that person in a little bit different light, just putting a little shadow on them or whatever. We need to be careful. We can say a little joke, a little comment that isn't really, you know, straightforward gossip, but it puts a little tinge of like, oh, really? They do that kind of thing? Like, you know what I'm saying? And we can assassinate people's character if we're not careful. We need to be careful. So, Let's, let's do this as a church. What if we started doing this? When somebody, when you're tempted to talk about somebody or somebody else is talking about somebody, just ask yourself, if that person was standing here, would I still say that? Would I still say that? And on the opposite, let's good gossip people. Let's good gossip. Let's say kind things. Let's say uplifting things. Amen? We need to repent. I'm right there with you because I've been guilty of this as well. We all have. None of us are perfect on this, but I feel it's a problem in our church, and let he who has ears to hear what the Spirit would say. You don't have to beat yourself up. Just own it, repent, and quit it. All right. That's what I love about Christianity. It's like the land of do-overs. Oh, I screwed up, and God's like, yeah, no doubt. I told you would. Okay, I'm sorry. All right, let's move on. Perfect. Well, let's go. Verse um, 17. So now, okay, check this out. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. And I'll pause there. Um, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. I like the way the NIV put it. It said this, you're not to nurse hatred in your heart. We're not to nurse hatred. We're not to have vengeance and we're not to hold grudges. I just have this, these images in my head, like nursing anger. Like you're angry at somebody, and you're like, they're there, it's okay. Keep that thing alive, you know, like just feed it, you know, love, love on, keep that anger burning inside. Somebody wrongs you, and you're like plotting, how am I going to get back at them? You know, I would think that most of us don't do that, but what we do often do is that last one where it says don't hold a grudge. The word grudge there means to keep something or to guard something. And so somebody wrongs you, and what do you do? You just keep that thing tucked away. And you feel justified to have it there because they wronged you. They wronged me. And maybe they really did. But we're not to harbor bitterness. We're not to harbor unforgiveness. We're not to hold grudges. Did you notice, by the way, how the quick remedy for this? He said, lest, he says, um, but you shall fr- reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of their transgression. He's like, talk to them. Lest you, okay, let's say they did sin against you, but because you didn't frankly reason it out with them, you just harbored it on the inside. Now you're in sin. But no, they're the ones that sinned. Yeah, but now you're in sin for harboring hatred. Does that make sense? It's almost like God's like saying, go talk about it frankly and deal with it. What if we did this stuff? This is mind-blowing. I'll bet you like 90-plus percent of the interpersonal relationship problems in the church would just go away if we would just, and I'm guilty of this one too, guys. I'm not doing this. If somebody offends you or irks you, whatever you say, I don't know if, this, if you meant to do this, but this hurt me. And they might say, yeah, I totally meant to do that. What do you do then? You forgive them anyway? Or they're, or they're like, oh, I didn't mean it like that. And, but what if we actually dealt with these things? And I'm the worst. I hate confrontation. You know, some people love it. Some people love it too much. None of us like it, really. But, but the idea is, it's like, go to your brother. Go to your sister. The worst is when somebody comes to the pastor and says, do you know so-and-so in your church is doing this? And you say, well, what did, what did they say? What do you mean what they say? Well, when you talk to them about it, what did you say? Well, I don't want to get involved but you want me to get involved? If you don't want to get involved, shut up. I'm I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek, but but honestly, if you don't want to get involved, what is that? 
We're a family. We, 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 we are involved whether you like it or not. We are interlinked. We, we are absolutely inseparable because we're a family. And so if all these little grudges and things are, it's just causing division. You know, we don't need in the world right now more division, especially in the body of Christ. Amen. So he says, instead of that, and we'll end on this, he says, but instead of that, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now we're getting down to honestly one of the most important verses in the entire Bible, and clearly we're at the end of our study here, so we can't take too much time, but he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Can I just say a couple of things because I think it's so important. Um, the Beatles were onto something. All we need is love. Love is all we need. Love, 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 love. All we need is love, 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 love is all we need. That's kind of true. It, it, I don't mean to sound like a motivational poster or something like that, but what the world needs right now is, is love, like real love. And But I need to say this because there is a different definition of love in the world than there is true love in the Bible. Do you understand that? For example, in the world, when there's a preaching of love, there's a preaching of love from those who don't even know Christ. They recognize we need to love. But oftentimes that love it is not real love because it's a love that means this. You have to agree with everything I say, and if you disagree, you don't love me. Do we not understand that that is not true love? You don't even have to think that one through too hard. If you're a parent, that doesn't compute. Because why? There's a, such a thing as actual absolutes, rights and wrongs. And we tell our kids no, and we disagree with them, and we course correct them. Why? Because we love them. It is not love to just agree with everyone blindly, or if we offend somebody, we've, we're not loving them. It could actually be the opposite. We might offend them because we love them. Amen? Now, we don't have to be offensive in the way that we correct or the way that we speak, but just because I say something is wrong or disagree and it offends you, that's not a lack of love. It actually might be real love. To say a lifestyle is sin is not a lack of love. That's actually real love. Because God gets to decide what's right and wrong again. Another thing that this doesn't mean, and I've heard this one with my own ears. I'm just kind of chuckle at the, at the thought of it. I don't mean to, if you thought this, I don't mean to make light of your situation. But here's what this doesn't mean. Where it says, love your neighbors yourself. That doesn't mean we need to learn to love ourselves so that we can love others. That is not what that means. Every time you read that in the Bible, there's never a context where anybody for one second would think that's what it meant. We need to learn to love, I need to learn to love myself so I can love others. That's actually the exact opposite of what it's saying. What it's actually saying is you already love yourself too much. So love others like you love yourself. We love ourselves. I hate myself. I, I don't like the way I look. And I, no, actually, you love yourself. That's why you're bummed about the way you look. Does that make sense? Again, I'm not trying to be a jerk up here. This is coming across so much harsher than I wanted it to. I'm not meaning it to, honestly, I promise. But the reality is, as human beings, our fallen condition is that we are in love with us. Don't we run everything through the grid of us in every situation? Anything comes up during the day. Well, how does this affect me? How do I feel about this? I don't know if I like this. I'm not comfortable with this. You understand what I'm saying? The old, every pastor's used this analogy. I'm sure Pastor Steve used it. I've used it. You take a group photo. Who's the first person you look for in the group photo? You. How do I look in that? I didn't even know you were in the photo. I was too busy looking at me, and I got three hairs out of place, you know, and there's something in my teeth. We run everything through the grid of us. That's actually our problem. What God is saying is we need to learn to love others the way that we love ourselves. Paul puts it something like this in Philippians 2 where he says, don't just be concerned about your own thing, but look at the thing of others. Consider others more important than yourself. We're to love. And I, and I just want to say a couple of things. I had a lot more I want to say, but I'm clearly not going to get to it. But I do want to say a couple of things. Jesus, or excuse me, let me, I told you what love isn't. Let me just remind you, um, Pastor Steve did 1 Corinthians 13 recently, the love chapter. And I just want to say that about this. Agape love, love as a Christian, Christian love, New Testament love, 
is an others-centered, never-changing, self-sacrificing love that loves for love's sake without expecting or demanding anything in return. I wrote that down so I wouldn't forget it. Let me read it again. Agape, love is an others-centered, never-changing, self-sacrificing love that loves for love's sake without expecting or demanding anything in return. Real love is when you give without expecting or, or looking for anything in return. You just love for love's sake. It's others-centered. And that's how we're to love our neighbors. That's how we're to love one another. I'll just read these to you quickly. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Jesus also said in John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another. John said in 1 John 4, he said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and he who loveth not knoweth not God, because God is love. And he goes on. I was just thinking of the song. Anybody remember that song when you were a kid? So the command is to love. We're to love one another. And that's heavy. Because if, when you start thinking about what that really looks like, you might be tempted to ask the same question that the Pharisees asked. Well, who is then my neighbor? You guys remember that? They came to Jesus, testing him. And Jesus said, well, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, your neighbors, yourself. Go do that and do likewise. Well, who is my neighbor? And it says, seeking to justify himself. And then he gave this story, didn't he, of this guy coming down from Jerusalem, down to Jericho, dangerous road, gets hit with robbers, laying there half dead. And who is it? A priest comes by, passes on. A Levite comes by, sees him, passes on the other side of the road. Guys, Jesus knew his audience and who he was talking to. The priests and the Levites, those guys are the religious, those guys are the pinnacle of religious guys that represent God to the people. And what did they say? I don't have time for this. This is inconvenient for me. I got to get going. And then who shows up? He says, a Samaritan. And you can almost hear in the crowd as Jesus is teaching them go, ooh, not a Samaritan. Because there was a deep, deep racial divide between the Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans were half-breeds. They were Assyrian Jews, and they were not considered pure Jews. There was a racial divide. There was a religious divide. There was a social economical divide. And Jesus uses that guy and says, that's the one who came and bound up his things and took care of him, took him back to the end. What was Jesus declaring? Who's your neighbor? Well, you're to love everyone. People of different color, people of different race, people of different socioeconomic status, people of different religion. Guys, do we understand that what the world is fighting about right now? We have the answer for that. It's in Christ. We're to love people. You know, I, I know a guy, I think I may have mentioned this already, I have a, a friend who's a, it's not a close friend, but a guy I know who's a pastor in downtown Seattle, Capitol Hill, right where CHOP was happening. And as all the riots and the craziness is going on, what did they do? They set up a nurse's station. Why? Because those protesters were getting hurt. Yeah, but what if you didn't agree with what they were protesting? But they were hurt. They needed somebody to put a, you know, wrap a bandage around their head. And they just loved on the people. How easy it would have been to just hide in the church and condemn what's going on instead of just loving the people that were hurt. They weren't condoning what was happening. They were just loving the people. It used to break my heart years ago when the whole Syrian refugee thing was happening and all around the world. And here we were, most of us as Christians, were just letting those people into our country. Well, I understand we have to protect our borders and be careful, but do you understand that 99.9% .9 of those people have been displaced from their home and were refugees and just need, they were in a different country, a different language, nothing familiar. And I praise God for the Christians that went to the airport and welcomed them and said, come to our house and have dinner and let me provide for you. What do you need? And gave them the love of Jesus. We're to love our neighbor. We're to love people that we don't agree with. We're to love people that 
have different religions. We're to love people that have different sexual orientation at the moment or whatever it is. We're still to love them. Not condone necessarily, but if somebody's in need, we're to have compassion and we're to love. Jesus even said this, love your enemies. I so much more, I, have, I can prove it. I have like another page of notes on this. I clearly am out of time like 20 minutes ago, but the point is, when you start wrapping your brain, this is what happened to me this week, is I start wrapping my brain around the gravity and the scope of what this command is, to love people in this way. You know what I do? I realize I don't got it. I think one of the healthiest things we can do as Christians is realize, apart from Christ, we don't love like this. And you know what the answer is not? It's not, come on, work up the love, let's go, try harder to love people, get out there and love them. That would be like the worst application I could give you. We need to understand what we're being commanded to do in loving our neighbors ourselves is absolutely beyond our ability to do without the power of the Holy Spirit. But Romans 5.5 5 says this, and I love this. Romans 5.5, 5, I'm in James because I didn't have my glasses on. Let me get to Romans, actually. Romans, Romans. 5.5 5 says this. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen? Not asking you, not asking myself to get out there in your own ability to love people. What I'm saying is when you receive Jesus Christ, Jesus' spirit came into you. And there's only one person who has ever loved God perfectly and loved people perfectly, and that is Jesus, and he lives in you. So now when we have the command to love, we actually can in Christ, love other people. Amen? But you know, even as a Christian, I find myself, I don't have it, I don't have it. Listen, I'll just quickly jump to it. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's a lot of other things, but love. And fruit is not a gift. Fruit doesn't just come. Fruit grows. And fruit only grows when it's abiding in the vine. Jesus said, I'm the true vine and you're the branches. And he who abides in me will bear much fruit. It's my Father's will that you bear fruit and that your fruit remains. Guys, how do I love more? You abide in Christ more. You just be with Jesus more. And guess what happens? You just, by byproduct of being with Jesus so much, you'll begin to react differently, look at people differently, care differently. You'll watch commercials on TV and start crying. I mean, you're, you're just going to, your heart, because he takes the heart of stone out and he puts a heart of flesh. And guys, what we need to do is just spend more time with Jesus, abide in Jesus, and just in every situation say, Lord, I don't have the love I need for that person. Love through me. And he will. Amen? Amen? Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's stand together. Um, I would apologize for going late, but it's so consistent at this point, I'm beginning to think this is just the time we dismiss now. So, um, in all seriousness, I think one of the most healthy things that can happen to a Christian is when God lovingly touches your heart and shows you areas of selfishness and lack of love. He never does that to rub our nose in it. He does that just to expose who and where we really are. And, and we're, if we're not careful, we can start living out our Christianity in our head, but not in practicality. And I don't want to do that, do you? I want to actually do this stuff, and I can't without the power of the Holy Spirit, without Jesus living through my life. I'm not trying to be corny when I say what the world needs is love right now. What the church needs to do is, is love one another right now. Guys, Jesus said when we love one another, we're actually fulfilling the entirety of the law. So on one hand, I'm saying, yes, guys, love one another. But on the other side, I'm saying, but it's actually impossible without Jesus being the one who's doing it through you without the power of his Holy Spirit. So if you recognize that lack of love in your marriage, family, work, whatever, just be real with God about it. God, I don't love them the way I should. Would you help me to love them? Would you change my heart? I want to be more like you, Jesus. And Lord, we do want to be more like you. And you said that we've been predestined to be conformed to your image, so you are making us more like you. 
I'll be the first to stand in line and confess, I don't love like I should. Forgive me. Forgive us as a church for not loving each other, dividing over dumb things, arguing, clipping people because they don't agree with us. Lord, forgive us. Help us to love one another. Help us to love those who we don't even know or agree with. Help us to even love our enemies. That the world might know that we're your disciples because of the way we love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And I love you guys. God bless you guys. You're dismissed.